0: Greetings. Welcome to episode 31 of the Great Lakes Horror Company podcast, presented by Library of the Damned. For this month's episode, we have a weird treat for you. Interviews with two titans of the modern weird tale, John Langan and Laird Barron, as conducted by our resident interviewer, Jason White. We apologize in advance for the phone noise in the first conversation. Technology gives us many great things, but it doesn't always play nice. Now, before we launch into this pair of fascinating conversations, We want to take a moment to say we appreciate your support wherever you listen to our show. On iTunes, Stitcher, Google Music, or directly on the Library of the Damned website. And that goes double for our patrons at the Library of the Damned Patreon, who help make this show possible. Unfortunately, this year has thrown a couple unexpected wrenches in our direction, hence the spottier-than-usual release schedule. But we're beating life's gremlins back with appropriately pointy sticks and have big, big plans for the future. Zephyr and I hope to be able to begin to share those with you next month. Finally, before I hand things over to Jason John and Laird, wherever you are, we hope you have a spooky and frightfully fun Friday the 13th.
1: Welcome. Uh I am excited to have Laird Barron with me. Laird, he was born in Alaska where he raced the uh, Dederod a, a few times. He later moved to Seattle. He is a Shirley Jackson award winner and the author of such esteemed collections as The Omega Sequence, Sequence, Occultation, The Beautiful Thing That Awaits Us All, and Swift Chase. He is author of the novels The Light is the Darkness and The Croning, and the novellas X is for Eyes and Man with No Name. Welcome to the show, Laird. Hi, Jason. It's an honor, it's an honor to be here. Yeah. So, uh, you know, in, in preparation for my questions with you, I, I came to the realization, you know, I've always known it, but... You never really think about it until you think about it, you know what I mean? But I, I figured out that weird fiction is perhaps my favorite genre to read in, and one reason for that is because it can be it can be much more horrifying than than what I thought my favorite genre was, and that's horror. And that's not a, a you know like a knock against horror. There's plenty of really good horror out there, but but I find that the the weird writers they can be more creepy. And I can't help that uh, Weird is maybe a bit of a marketing approach of selling fiction from a marketer's standpoint. Uh, but it seems like it's a lot more like a literary type of horror. Would you agree with that?
2: Actually, I agree with sort of both premises that you've there in your intro. Um, I just got back from a convention, Nikon uh, 37. And as an aside, it's a really wonderful, wonderful experience. Yeah. But... Um, we actually uh, talked about or discussed this on a panel. Uh, and I, I think the first third of the panel uh, was moderated by Jack Garanga and uh, John Langan cool. who was, was on there as well, amongst others. But we, we, we sort of tackled this idea that, and I think we all I think to one degree or another, the panelists uh, all agreed that a lot of this is a marketing strategy as much as anything else. However, that said, I think in so, in as much as there are genres and micro genres, uh, at all, I think it's safe to say that there is, it is, it is fair to say that there, there is a type of literature that would qualify or could be logically uh, deemed the weird. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in other words, it doesn't really matter that the vast majority, I think, is a marketing strategy. I, as a matter of fact, one of the observations I've made over the last few years, and, and this is coming from somebody who edited the first, uh, Mike Kelly's first uh, annual year's best weird, yeah, which I, I thought then and and, and, and still think uh, was an important niche to fill uh, in the in the annual year's best uh, you know, categories. but sort of an underserved uh, micro you know micro genre. But there is I, I do believe there is something that can be termed the weird. and as opposed to a lot of uh, a lot of stuff that I see, which is simply quiet fiction, you know mm-hmm. weird or you know, we excuse me quiet horror uh, which is you know uh, very much traditional what we would consider traditional horror but it's quiet so I think a lot of people really will do anything they can a lot of writers will do anything they can just kind of squirm out from under you know the idea that they're that they're writing horror because it's still not uh, necessarily a sexy marketing uh, genre <laughs> or a category and so hey the weird you know I write quiet horror the people like what's quiet horror you know weird fiction but all that said i really do think that that there uh, is justifiably uh or it is justifiable to refer to certain types of writing as, as weird fiction and the interesting thing is on one hand i think it can be terrifying yes. uh, it, it encompasses that uh at the same time it doesn't have to have any overt horror whatsoever i mean it's part of what for me, what, what determines whether something's weird or not isn't whether it has a horror component, because I think it actually is, it probably is a subset of horror anyway, but that it sort of causes a dislocation or discombobulation in the reader, that basically, even if you, in a horror story, even at the end, if you get all the pieces together, you can go, ah, this is what was happening. Even if it's something sort of ineffable, there, there's sort of rules, there's rules to vampires. There's 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 rules to how werewolves operate, etc. Even even Lovecraft's ineffable monstrosities, you know, uh, over the years with with the, all the tampering that others have done with it and, and the mutations it has gone through, we kind of have you know have some rules. They can only do certain things at certain times. The elder sign will frighten them, etc. And so forth.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: But weird weird fiction, truly weird fiction, isn't inexplicable simply because of your viewpoint and you don't have all the information, it is still inexplicable even if someone came along and handed you every piece because the pieces wouldn't necessarily fit together in a way that is congruent with your understanding of the universe. Yeah. And I think for an example, I think uh I'll just throw out one. There are several, but one example is Brian Evanson, his collapse of horses, probably anything Brian's done really, but this collapse of horses, or a collapse of horses, has, you know, possesses several stories that are sort of fulfilled that, nightmarish, uh, almost, you know, to go back to Lovecraft, the, the non-Euclidean geometry of things that happen in the stories. There's just no, no matter, even if you had more uh, backfill on these stories, you still would be left with uh, this feeling of the laws of physics have somehow been violated, uh, and but there's not going to be an explanation as to how.
1: Yeah, one thing I like—you kind of brushed upon the the uh, the ambiguity of uh, of weird fiction. That's one thing that that I think what leaves me feeling most chilled when I read a really well written weird story is just you know uh, where it leaves or how it makes the reader participate within the story.
2: Yeah, agreed. Um You know, going back to uh, Brian, or Brian Evanson. There's a story called Blood Drip, and it's ostensibly, I think, because we always try to find pattern in things that we haven't encountered. Uh, it, it could be a vampire story, mm-hmm. and I'm not going to even give away any of it at all. But people go out and should go out and grab this book and read this story. It's it's just a fine, fine piece of work. But I'm reading it. A couple people I've talked to about it came to similar conclusions that there's some sort of you know, that it, that it basically brushes against the vampire mythology, yet it does so in a way that is so alien uh, to, to anything I've read in that tradition, and yet also so firmly rooted in, re, in, in our reality that uh, there's this really, there's this sort of dissonance that is created that lingers with with you long after you've read the story, and I think one of the things that came up during the panel, because this was, you know, this was a tremendously compelling conversation that we had about it, um, is that one of the, it seems like some of the some of the most potent weird stories, actually, you know, they're by guys like, say, uh, Robert Aikman, is that they're so grounded in re- what makes them work is that they're so grounded in prosaic reality that the that, that when the shift occurs, it's just this minor. You know, by, by genre standards, it's not overkill. It's this minor shift, and that's what makes it so frightening: is that it, it's not so vastly removed from our everyday reality that we are overwhelmed. Like, okay, I'm numb. No, huh. you constantly. I think what I think what causes this this a dissonance and b this overall sort of lingering chill is that there's this nightmarish sense that we're still in our world, but but just half a millimeter just this almost imperceptible uh level of of uh removed from, from our everyday reality there's just something slightly wrong and half of the, the dread builds from trying to figure out what it is
1: yeah uh, you mentioned Aikman there um I remember hearing you on a podcast before I can't remember which one but you brought him up that you uh that you went through his uh uh, from the beginning to the end of his work, basically, and you found uh, that there is a mythology that that suddenly pops out at you. And uh, I found that you have your own mythology within your own stories. So I was wondering how you approach that. I'm I'm pretty sure it's probably something that you it kind of popped out on you as well as while you were creating these stories. Is that right?
2: Right. Um, I was. I had enough for. War- foresight when I began publishing back in 2000, that early on, I determined that I wanted to work with it, that I wanted to create a larger universe Mm -hmm. that that was loosely, that the stories would be loosely and novels would be loosely related to one another, and perhaps some would contain you know, would be sequels or prequels, but, but in general, I actually wanted to be a little more ambitious than that. It's actually fairly easy to create serial fiction. What I wanted to create and I didn't, you know, I didn't understand the word term. We weren't really throwing around the word the term weird at the time. It was just, but I wanted, but I wanted to kind of create this sort of, um, I don't know, an experience that had strange angles and strange junctures that didn't that that were all related but didn't necessarily line up even perfectly. Yeah, because because early, you know, about probably the third or fourth year in, so like the mid odds. I had gotten to the point where I'm like, all right, I'm going to use these recurring characters and there's going to be scenes from stories that are reflected in other stories. And there's going to be a lineage. And, and, and I wrote a lot of this stuff down, but once again, you know, that wasn't enough. I didn't, I didn't think that that was uh it had been, it's been done before. And, uh, you know, it's a fun thing to do. Stephen King actually does, you know, he's to the point now where, you know, he, a lot of his later work will reference, Mm -hmm. many, many characters and and towns and events from past books. I think that's great, And and I certainly do that. But I wanted to do something even slightly different. It's one thing to create sort of this universe that you can codex it at some point, and it all lines up fairly neatly. I wanted to create something that doesn't necessarily line up in every place neatly, that's reflective of sort of a nightmarish in the first place yeah and so uh, yeah I use I, I went from early on you know uh, having recurring characters to actually having characters that are different from story to story in other words I, I'm not going to give any of it away but there are a few characters floating around in my in my uh, old Leech universe that have one personality in one story but then when you meet them again they're superficially the same, may have the same name, or they'll have the first, you know, they'll, their first name will be the same, but their surname will be different, or it'll be a different time period, and they're, and and, and they're kind of like doppelgangers of each other. I, you know, I'm fascinated with the whole doppelganger uh, sort of legend, and, yeah. and so I've been pl- I've been playing with that. I I want people to, to see how the stories relate. I mean, there has to be enough connective tissue that that really is that really is dire- a, a direct connection. But there's also a certain amount, you know, it's probably pretty close to 50-50 at this point where they don't line up correctly. And I, and I think the analogy would be if you smash a mirror and you look at it and you've got this sort of kaleidoscopic effect that it's your face being reflected, but it's not your face by any means because the medium is untrustworthy.
1: Yeah, it's very much a, like a, a layered thing. There's uh, different layers, different dimensions, maybe... <laughs>
2: Well, and, and also I operate in, in two universes. So, uh, and, and, you know, and the other thing is it's not even that simple. It's not even like, okay, in universe, A you have, you, you know, I kind of had it separated out to where you've got where I have a bunch of stories that take place in one reality. And that's sort of the old each reality. And then there's a bunch of transhuman, you know, humanism in the other reality, which is sort of like the imago sequence. Well, they, the problem is, is that some of the more powerful creatures, uh, godlike creatures in those in those realities basically can step across time and space and so the stories some of the stories actually bleed over into each other so it's you know the thing is it's uh, it's not neat and it's not clean and I, I have a fairly comprehensive uh, as I would say a, kind of a codex of the stuff but I found after a little while that's just not to me anyway that's just not as interesting I actually prefer what necessarily uh, what Aikman intentionally was doing because I really don't I haven't you know, I haven't studied what Aikman said about his writing as much as I've just gone through his stories and made my own, uh-huh. uh, in, you, know, in, you know, inferences. But I prefer the this idea that, yeah, in some places the writing matches, the writing lines up. You're like, ah, like I have this character named Jessica Mace who has episodic adventures, but people have already figured out. I, I had not publicly stated it, I don't believe, but they've already figured out that there's some kind of weird time gap. You know, I think I have four of her stories out now. They've, they've already figured out that a couple of them don't seem like they match up with, the, with her history, that the mm-hmm. history has stated. And that's intentional. Uh, Jessica Mace, there, there's a Jessica Mace A universe, and a Jessica B Mace B universe. And to me, it just, the main function of it is, uh, it gives the readers uh, who seek stuff like this out something to
1: something to dig up if they want to yeah that's like with me i don't seek that out necessarily but i love it when i find it and uh so finding it near work was uh, was really fun and uh, i find that uh, you have uh, an incredible ability to merge genres like crime noir adventure high society and uh, you tend to make them dark and <laughs> sometimes quite messed up uh now my question here is, I was wondering if uh, if that's your intention to like throw in all the nasty stuff or or do the monsters come in just naturally like while you're writing it, without you intending them to be there?
2: Well, it depends on what what story. I've, I've actually some of my mid some, well I shouldn't say mid-career because I'm probably entering mid-career now. But let's just go back to like you've got Emigo sequence, the first collection, and the second one was Occultation, and the third was uh, was the beautiful thing that awaits Saul. They form a trilogy, and they're very Lovecraftian as a whole, mm-hmm. and they're very much, you know, there's a, there's a certain variety in there, but overall, if you had to, you know, if I were to just sum them up in a thumb, a thumbnail, is that you know they're they're Lovecraftian cosmic horror, and then and you know and then more specifically, you know, they, as you said, they. I use a lot of hard-boiled uh, crime, thriller, and and uh, adventure, I guess, adventure fiction to kind of sort of be the base. Like if it were a stew, it's the base, and the horror comes in spice. Uh, this later stuff, though, you know, this latest collection I had out from Journal Stones called Swift to Chase, and deals with Alaska, or at least most of the stories reference Alaska at some point. And it's in the same, you know... It, the stories take place in the same universe or universes as the previous, you know, it's the same, the same realities. And so, uh, old leech, you know, is referenced here and there and, and, and some of that stuff. But the only thing that's different, uh, is for a long time when I wrote those, when I was working, especially on the second and third collection, I, you know, I knew that I wanted to write more stories about these specific, uh, sort of villains and enemies. And and so, of course, you know, when I write Mysterium Tremendum or The Broadsword, uh, Jaws of Saturn, uh, I, you know, obviously I knew that the children of old leech and related entities would be uh, would be involved. What slightly changed is when I was writing these uh, these Alaska stories, and I'm hoping to do two more collections, you know, to complete this trilogy, is that some of it did surprise me more um, because I'm focusing less on monsters, If you go through the collection. There's a couple stories in there that definitely deal with, you know, with the with the traditional idea of monsters. I like think the monsters are slightly different, but but they're definitely uh, you know could be categorized as, as supernatural creatures. Mm-hmm. But some of it is you know, and, and then a lot of the other stories are more rooted in giallo and psychological horror and that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, actually. All, you know, my plotting about that whole collection, cause everything I do is, is fairly, you know, I, I, I what they call or what Weston Oaks refers to as a panzer You know, I, I very seldom know where, this, where it's going or, or I will have an ending and I'll work to it. But I don't necessarily, you know, I don't have a detailed plot. Usually I, I prefer to experience the story myself for the first time when I write it. Mm-hmm. That said, though, is I have an overall idea of what it will be and how it's going to organically fit with my other material. But that said, yeah, there was more room. I, some things surprised me in this latest collection and that specifically some of the monsters that popped up and how they manifested, uh, kind of took me by surprise. Uh, and you know what? Sometimes they didn't show up at all. There, there were a few stories where the monsters were, were never, never made it onto the stage. And, uh, I don't know. In, in some ways, uh, I really did change my writing style the last three or four years in a sense. I, became less programmatic and more uh in the moment as i wrote and, I, and also i just sort of let them you know i have a ten, you know i edit heavily and i try to make sure the stories are smooth and they make sense etc but i tried to leave in intention i took i took kind of a, a leaf out of Stephen graham jones's book I, i'm not sure what his process is so i won't speak to that but i know that he's very organic and he's very of consciousness and how he writes and mm-hmm. he doesn't go back and rewrite the stories a lot before before he sends them off and i played with that and uh to, to the extent that i'm you know that my abilities allow me to and my latter stories last five six years are much rawer than the the first 10 years probably
1: you mentioned that uh uh when you go to write a story you don't plan it out or or plot it out but you do have an idea of where it's going does the finished manuscript look a lot different from from what you had in your imagination before writing it and maybe even during writing it?
2: Yes. Uh, I, in general, every now and then I'm surprised you know I'll, I'll have the story will just pretty much be will, will, will sort of exist. and of course it's slightly different, but you know, it, it remains the same. I would say that's about two percent of the time. You know, out of all my stories, I probably have five or six stories that have been that easy for me. The rest of them, uh, generally, I'm trying to think who said it. I want to say John Gardner, but I'm not sure if, if, if I'm giving credit to the right writer. But basically, they said that writing uh, a story or a novel is a lot like driving in the dead of night, a super dark night, and you can only see as far as your headlights. So the, the path ahead of you is exposed a few feet at a time. And that's really... uh how it is for me. I, I know what the landscape takes shape just a few feet uh, in, in front of my lamp, And that's pretty much, that's pretty much uh, how I write all my stories. And then of course I go back through and uh, rewrite, it. you know, I have a tendency to go back through and rewrite it to make sure that uh, it makes sense and that it fits in with, with, within the larger scope. I mean, cause that's, that's the biggest thing for me. It is, it's no longer, okay, does the story work independently? Of course it has to do that. Yeah. It has to, it has to fit in to a larger, uh, this larger body that I've created because I decided early on I don't want, I, I just have no interest in writing a bunch of one-off stories. You know, every now and then I do one. It's, it's a great stress reliever just to have this B-side story floating around.
1: Yeah. Uh,
2: but I really, uh, I'm pretty much married to the idea now, uh, until death do his part, uh, that everything is going to fit into something. And if it doesn't fit into, you know, if I finish a story, it doesn't fit into, into what I'm conceiving as the next collection, then it's not going to go in there. It's going to, it's going to sit in a bank somewhere until, or the vault somewhere until, uh, until there's a place for it. Yeah.
1: Oh, um, one thing I love about reading your fiction is it's like, uh, it's like going exploring. <laughs> you have to. You oftentimes have to reread the story just to see if if what you read, if you perceived it, the same way or not while reading it the second time, and you always find new things. And I I find that your writing is really thick and dense with symbolism, character, and atmosphere. So I was wondering, how do you develop these ingredients when you approach a
2: story? Well, thank you. Um, when I it, it, and it's an in, it's an interesting process because I just sold a couple of crime novels to uh, GB Putnam Sons oh, and congratulations. These are thank you. Great fun. I'm enjoying. Actually, I I think I've had the most fun. I'm working on the second one now, and I think just from a uh, very primal place, I really enjoy writing these books. They uh like. John will tell you I was renting a room from them when I John Langan when I uh, and his wife when I wrote the first one and they said man you laugh a lot when you're working on this <laughs> kind of cackle maniacally you know I enjoy writing in general but it's more it's it's it, it's kind of a grind you know I do it uh, every day for many hours a day uh, seven days a week and I'm pretty exacting of myself I'm meticulous and so the minute to minute not really that much fun you know it's fulfilling. But this writing this crime fiction uh, actually is fulfilling and enjoyable. Uh, but it's a, in a roundabout way I'm kind of getting at is that one thing I noticed, especially working with my editors and stuff at the at the, uh, the at Putnam, is that what we're looking for, what they're looking for in commercial fiction, is a lot different than what. Uh, I've written for the, the, the you know, the midsize to small press. Yeah. Uh, and, and probably, you know, what I write for the mid-sized and small press would actually fit in quite well with some, with, with some of the more independent, you know, the uh, big publishers who are looking for something really literary. So I guess it's a long way around to say that, you know, uh, there is a huge difference, uh, depending on what you're writing and short fiction for years has been. You know, I, I've just been lucky because a lot of my stuff is pretty baroque. It's pretty dense, and I don't really think it's something that unless you read me for a while, because I think authors sort of sort of train people how to read them.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, I think after you read Cormac McCarthy, for example, for a while, or if you read Brian Evenson, you know, a couple books by Brian Evenson, or especially somebody like Robert Aikman, you don't know how to read. I don't think you know how to read Robert Aikman, or could possibly know how to read him. Uh, cause he's sort of an extreme example of this until you've read at least one of his collections and started on another one. And you start, if you're paying attention, you start putting it together going, Oh, this is sort of what, this is sort of what he's trying to say. And, and maybe this is how I should be interpreting him. Because the problem is that we bring, I shouldn't even say problem. The reality is that we readers bring a lot of baggage into, uh, into the equation. Mm-hmm. Uh, our preconceptions are, are, how we, how, how we have been trained, uh, by our, you know, by our experiences to, uh, to interpret genre. When we talk about genre, you know, when you, when you, when you write crime or you write category science fiction or whatever, you're working within a tradition. You can, you can do some interesting stuff within that tradition, but you're still, you know, if it's crime fiction, there still has to be a body at some point. There has to be a robbery or there has to be a heist of some, I mean, they're, they're, you know, if it's a Western, somebody's going to be wearing a cowboy hat and I'm sure people are going to be riding horses. I mean, there, <laughs> there are these various, there are these various, know, there's a train robbery probably, or, or something to do with the train. I mean, the, there are these various, um, I don't want to even say formula, but basically signposts or traditions that make up these genres. And then you hopefully will do something that justifies uh, your entry into that particular part of the canon. So, you know I, I look at this and I just uh, I don't know if, if I could really articulate like some sort of um, formula for having developed my style uh, because I'm I'm different than any single you know how I how I execute fiction is very different from almost any single uh, influence that I that I enthusiastically claim you know i they always talk about the anxiety of influence and i i'm sort of uh the opposite i i believe the ecstasy of influence which i believe let um, lethem or someone of that somebody along those lines had something to say about is i am proud of uh the people who have uh sort of formed formed my creative self whether it's barbara cartland at one end or cormac mccarthy or or, or Hessa or somebody like that at the other end. And I guess it's cliche, but to say, you know, you kind of are, you kind of are what you, uh, consume. Uh, one advantage that I seem to have is that with, with, with some minor nudging, I was able early on to recognize a lot of the mistakes and a lot of the weaknesses that I have and try to, and try to either strengthen them or, or steer myself away from them and into areas that I'm a lot better at. And one of the things I figured out way back when is that if you want to write horror, then you should read crime mm-hmm. and you should read romance, etc. No matter, no matter what it is that you want to focus on, you're going to be decent at that because you have a passion for it. But if you want to be really good at it and you want to approach it in a way that is different than what everybody else is doing, uh, or you want to add your, add your voice to the singular voices. The only way you can do that is to go outside that genre and start, and start looking for, uh, something to bring, bring back to it. Like basically that genre might be your nest and you're trying to feather it. You need to go out and, and, and find, and find things to bring back. You don't, you don't skulk around the nest and try to recycle what's already there.
1: Yeah. I've heard that theory before. It's like, uh, don't learn just how uh your own genre that you want to work in works. Uh, figure out how other genres work as well, and then you can really apply different elements into the genre that you want to work in. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, to switch gears a little bit, uh, I I remember listening on a podcast about your story thirty one being adapted into a, into a film. It's written and directed by Philip Gallett. Um, now, at the time, this was, I think, in uh, in the winter, they didn't have a release date yet. Uh, do, do you know of any release date yet?
2: No, uh, I know that it's getting close. I, let's see, it was from, uh, it, yeah, it's Philip Gillette, and he adapted a story from Occultation, the Occultation Collection, called 30, which I wrote for the uh, Shirley Jackson. Uh, that's really Jackson. A <laughs> yeah, right. I said thirty-one. is thirty. Sorry. So I so, thought, well, you'll, the reason I, well, you know what, it's pedantic. It's not going to be called that anyway. But uh, uh, Rob Zombie just had a film called Thirty-One. So I'd hate to. I don't want Rob Zombie to come after me. <laughs> but anyway, uh, he'll find me. But no, um, it's called at least at this uh, at this point. It's called They Remain. Yeah, and it should be. You know, I don't know when I don't know when it will premiere when it will first screen but what I have been told and what was released in variety here about a month or a month and a half ago is that it will it, it will make it to the festival circuit so I don't know what that means entirely but it's coming and yeah. once that happens is you know because I, I know this happened with other like one of the what was it the witch? last year it actually had come out the year before on the festival circuit and then the next year it went into wider distribution mm-hmm. now, i don't know if that's the case here but i i wouldn't be surprised you know I, if it hits if it hits um uh, the festival circuit this fall and then this winter or or next spring it comes out uh i do know that paladin uh, is the name of the company that's going to distribute it so that's always a good you know the fact that it's you know that it's going to be widely distributed is a good is a good sign
1: yeah, uh, you saw a screening of the movie. What was it like seeing your stories come to life, or your character come to life within your story?
2: Yeah, it's, it was great. I have a lot of faith in Phil. Uh, he's a great writer. He wrote uh, the you know he was the lead writer on the Europa Report, which is a really wonderful independent film. Came yeah, out a I years ago. Movie. Yeah, it's you know it's. I knew it was in good hands. I suspected I was when uh, I, when when I found out what he had you know what his credits were and that's a good one, but you know, he showed me a draft of, uh, you know, of the screenplay uh, for, for they remain. And I, I knew I was in good hands. That was the, I confirmed, but the guy is really good. Uh, um, very, it's very faithful. I will say this it's very faithful to the, to the story. Um, and I went up, you know, uh, he and uh, will, will Battersby, one of the producers had had me up to the, uh, movie, uh, the film site back in 2015 when they were filming it up in uh, way upstate New York. And it was, that's actually what really hit me is uh, they were going through that day. They were going through a scene uh, that, you know, kind of a tense scene in the, in the story. And what, and what, it, what hit me. And then of course was reinforced when I watched the film is you always, you know, a lot of writers, that's one of the bucket list items. You know, Oh man, I would love to have something made to a film. Mm-hmm. You know, and then we just casually, you know you, you know, you think about this story or that story or this novel or that novel. With you know, wow, it'd be great if you know actors of your choice, you know, <laughs> populate this film and do it. What I what I didn't appreciate until I until I saw it firsthand what the actor had to go through, and then and then of course the rest of the film is just how cavalierly, you know, or just how horribly I treat my characters. <laughs> That's <what> they're going. <laughs> Stuff that I just you know casually wrote. It was very I mean, a very tense scene, and to watch someone go through that you know, uh, crawling around naked in the desert or in the, in the forest or whatever being hunted, uh, you know, the, just how stressful, you know, for, for them to try to, uh, for that actor to try to sort of emote appropriately emote the, uh, you know, the terror yeah. and, and, and dread and, and, and adrenaline that would be occurring within that kind of a, a struggle, uh, gave me, you know, it gave me a new appreciation for what, for, for what I'm writing, and for what uh, you know, what links these guys will go through to see it, to see it done. I yeah. mean, these guys really—they believe in their craft. I mean, they—they they, uh, uh, were, we're working. You know, Rebecca Henderson is, was the is the female lead, and um, William Jackson Harper is, is the male lead. And I I was watching him perform, and I, that's what's stuck with me a year and a half later. Is just how how seriously they take their craft. And how rugged that craft can be, and when you are sort of responsible for some of the, and I, of course I heard a bunch of stories, you know, and so you somehow feel strangely responsible for some of the, the pain and suffering that they go through trying to bring your work to life. Yeah.
1: Do you feel guilty at all?
2: No, because uh, I don't feel guilty uh, because it's it's voluntary and everybody gets paid and all that. But I do feel. But I had to force myself to see it that way. I have to admit, yeah. when I first saw some of the stuff they were going through, of course, I felt, oh, I wish I would have been nicer. And then, of course, another part was like, no, <laughs> <laughs> you, should, you should up the ante next time. It's, what I would say is it's not guilt, it's appreciation. Yeah. I, have deep, I have a deep and abiding appreciation
1: for the actor's craft. For sure. Um, well Before we uh, started this interview, I, I mentioned that uh, I also talked to John Langan for this episode. And uh, he had a lot of great things to say about you. And uh, I know that you guys are friends. And I, I was really excited when he won the Stoker for the Fisherman. You must have been pretty excited, too.
2: I got to tell you, man, I got misty-eyed. Um, it's it's fair to say, and you know, he and I have been, been dear friends for many years now, but I have... And I hope to continue to make a lot of friends in this industry. I'm very close to a lot of people, and the bottom line is, I had other friends. You know, I consider Stephen Graham Jones, for example, and Paul trembler I feel close to both of them, uh, especially Paul, whom I've known and, and, and been at his house many a time, etc. Know his family, but you know, I, I love those two guys, for example. But I'm so glad that, uh, that John won it. I was rooting for him. You know, if, if any of those three would have won, I would have felt that the Stokers had done themselves, uh, more of an honor than they, than they could have possibly bestowed on the writers. However, John's book, it's not even about John. The fishermen deserve that mm-hmm. uh, award out of that particular group. And that was a, I mean, Bracken had a great book, you know, his Hands in there. That, that's a tremendous i mean that just sort of doubles it for me though or, or intensifies it you know it wasn't a weak slate. that was one of the strongest slates that i've seen in a a whole, you know not even a horror genre but just in our kind of our whole end of the spec, uh, spectrum you know the speculative fiction uh, end of it for sure i you know and the, so like i said i'm friends with him and of course i'm biased but that particular book is a great book it's you know, people who don't know John from Adam. Uh, I mean, I, I see lots of message boards blowing up talking about that book. Um, I was really, you know, so, so as a writer, I felt you know this fulfilling sense of good. You know, uh, the, the genre is well represented, the canon is well represented with that particular labor mm-hmm. being recognized. But as his friend, uh, absolutely uh, ecstatic.
1: Yeah, I also asked him. You know, since you two are friends, uh, if you guys ever considered collaborating on a story before, and he said that yes, you have thought of it, but you guys just can't really line up the time correctly. But I think if you guys did come up with a story, that would kick some serious ass.
2: (laughs) I would, uh, you know, as long you know, you you always hate to say yeah one of these days because things happen. Mm -hmm. Life, life is fragile, but. You know all things being equal and assuming that you know we we have years ahead of us it's something that that we want to do and I think we felt increasing pressure not from the fans or you know editors or anything but just sort of between the two of us like you know we really really should do this life is you know we're not getting any younger and I you know we have talked about it what we have talked about is probably you know, either a big novella or a short novel, you know, I I don't think we would do a collaborate on a novel. I think we're both way too, way too inundated with stuff to do that. But if, but if we each contributed 15, 20,000 words on a, on a short novel or long novella, I think that's, that's something that will happen sooner or later. And I think a, because we're friends, but also John is one of a handful of people that I would really like to, to write a story with. And, And thirdly, I, I think that, I think it would be something special. I think we would, uh, create something that, you know, uh, be worthy and uh, I hope I hope we get around to it. Yeah, I hope so too, honestly.
1: Now, uh before we go, I was just wondering if you have anything that's coming out soon that listeners can look forward to. I know you uh, you mentioned uh, those crime novels.
2: That's well, right, I'm, you know, I have a collection right now if everybody go out if they're interested in trying out my latest work, uh you know it's still pretty it's still pretty fresh it came out uh, last last fall uh or excuse me uh, swift to chase yes that's my fourth collection the alaska collection that's from journal Zone, um and i have stories coming out i'm trying to think i have um like i said this is a quiet year because i'm i don't have a novel this year and i'm working on a novel i'm not working on a lot of short fiction so i don't you know it's it's basically i'm kind of it's a wind up next three or four years there's going to be a lot of stuff coming out but uh one thing i am proud of is i, I wrote a story uh for um darren spiegel and i believe uh mike parker i believe in or no i'm trying to think i'm blowing i'm blowing the name of the other editor but it's, it's a dark regions anthology coming out i want to say this fall this winter called adam's ladder and uh, darren spiegel solicited uh from me and it's a jessica mace uh, no, no, novel answer. It's cool. about 10,000 words. So I'm really excited about that. The next actual book coming out, uh, will be May 20, 2018. And that's the, the first crime novel. and uh, It's called blood standard. Uh, but I, am not really pushing that yet because, uh, yeah. it's not, up, it's not up for order or anything. So, yeah. uh, maybe so next time you and I talk, we'll, I'll have more to say about it. Yeah,
1: for sure. Um, I'm really looking forward to your crime novels because just reading your your crime short stories and and whatnot, you can you can tell that you have a lot of fun reading them because they're a lot of fun to read uh, writing them because you they're a lot of fun to read too. Uh, I just uh, I love your crime
2: stuff. I I appreciate it, and I'll just say one brief thing about that uh, to my current fans that are listening. It it is straight noir crime. You know, it, any supernatural element is more kind of hinted at. I play, I play by the rules, you know, I, I, I wanted to write a commercial uh, crime novel mm-hmm. or series, but I. But, but that said, it's in its own way, within the rules, it's as dark as, uh, you know, think true detective dark, it's dark. Yeah, so. well,
1: you know, honestly, I think your fans will understand, because people who read you will understand, I think, that this is a natural way for you to go. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, with less supernatural, more crime, because, you know, you've kind of done it anyway. If you, if you, you know, you, I mean, obviously you're, you're the writer, <laughs> so you know what I'm talking about.
2: Right. And it's, uh, you know, like I said, it's very, it, it's very commercial. And, and by that, I mean, it's, it's, uh, accessible. And I think, I think it'll, you know, I still, I'm still using the language, uh, it's just that it's, it's more streamlined, and I, and I feel like uh, and the, you know, the plotting is more is, is more streamlined. So I, I, I really do think that uh, it should have a good chance to attract, you know, your regular your regular crime crime readership. But I think the people who liked what I've done already, who like that hardboiled horror, will still find something uh, you know to, to embrace in this. Excellent.
1: So uh, where can listeners find you online?
2: Get me uh, a Twitter, hit me up at Twitter uh, under uh, Laird Mm Barron, Facebook, same thing. And my website is uh, my official author site is Laird Barron at WordPress.com.
1: Excellent. Well, it's always a pleasure talking with you, Laird. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Welcome back. This is Jason White, and today I am joined by John Langan. John is the author of the novels House of Windows and The Fisherman, along with the collections Mister Gone and Other Uneasy Encounters, and the wide, con- uh, along with the wide carnivorous sky and other monstrous geographies. In two thousand and eight, he was a Bram Stoker Award nominee for best collection, and recently he won the Stoker for The Fisherman. He is on the board of directors for the Shirley Jackson Awards, and I believe uh, I believe your author also a uh, co-founder of the Shirley Jackson Awards. Is that right? Uh, yes, that's right. Awesome. Well, welcome to the show, John. Thanks so much, Jason. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. Um, we we were trying there for a while to get you on, but both of our schedules were uh, really clashing. <laughs> I know. Sometimes it just happens that way, doesn't it? Oh, for sure. Life is. Uh is strenuous uh, sometimes, and, you know, trying to do these, fit these little things in uh, can be frustrating, and I, actually, on that topic, I was listening to the Lovecraft e podcast, and I think it was either Joe Pulver, or maybe it was uh, Ellen Datlow, I'm not sure, but they said that uh, sometimes you struggle with deadlines, and I know, <laughs> I know I certainly do, so I was wondering if there are any tricks that you try to utilize to get projects done.
3: Uh, you know, if there, I, I, I wish I could say that there are. Um, it's, it's mostly just uh, sitting down at the, at the desk and just one page at a time. Mm-hmm. I, uh, yeah, I, I'm afraid that with, with Ellen especially, um, I've, I've really pushed my luck as far as <laughs> deadlines, uh, deadlines go. I'm sorry, Ellen. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, but, you know, for me, I, I mean, I've had friends say to me, oh, just, just write it. You know, just, just don't worry about, uh, about uh, in a way, how good it is. Just get it done. And you know, I, I mean I, I get that you can obsess over things too much. Um who was it was that one guy, um, when I was a kid, Harold Brodke, and he spent like thirty years writing one novel, you yeah. know. Um and and, and I don't want to be that guy. But on the other hand, you know, while I'm writing, um wh- when I sit down each day to write, I look at what I wrote the day before and it's inevitable that I'm like, Oh, look at that, you know, you you use the same word for three sentences in a row. That's uh, you can't do that, you yeah. know. Or, or, man, look at that. That's just uh, declarative sentence after declarative sentence. And uh, and in order for me to, to move ahead, I have to, to get it to uh, to a point where I feel reasonably happy with it. I I am not a not that much of a perfectionist that that I am going to write the same story for you know for thirty years. But um, I, I, for me, it's really important to, to try to get it as right as I can, um, right out of the gate, so that when I send it to the editor, whether it's Ellen or Joe or whoever, um, what they have to, to work with and, and to give me feedback on is a lot further along than just a, a, a first draft. Yeah. Um you you you're
1: mainly known for uh, uh, being a, a weird fiction writer and also a horror writer. Um, would you say that there are any elements that define weird the weird fiction label? And if so, uh, what would you say separates it from the genre of horror?
3: Well, I, you know, I have to be honest. I, I mean, and I've been in, you know, I had a story in the very first uh, uh, volume of, uh, what is it, Undertow's uh, Year's Best Weird Fiction. Mm-hmm. So it sort of seems hypocritical for me to say I don't really think weird fiction is a thing. Um, but, but I don't. Um, it, it's, you know, it goes back, I guess, it seems to me that it goes back to, to Lovecraft in some of his his essays and letters talking about weird fiction. Yeah. But he kind of, from what I can tell, he uses it interchangeably with horror fiction. Um, you know, a number of, of critics have, have tried to say, oh, nobody talked about horror fiction, you know, or, or horror as a term. Before the say the nineteen seventies uh, when it becomes this marketing category and, and obviously on into the nineteen eighties, um, but you know you go through Lovecraft's letters and he's talking about horror stories. Now I haven't made an exhaustive search through the the letters, you know, of of uh, Henry James and and Hawthorne and Poe and all that, but uh, the the term the, the term horror fiction goes back a ways. Um, I I have the sense now that. The writers who are using weird fiction are using it as a as a way to to try it's it's two I, I sense i feel it has two purposes one is they're trying to differentiate the work that they're doing from what came before, which mm-hmm. is something that every generation of writers does right we're not like those guys who came before us we're doing our own thing they wrote horror what we do is weird hmm. but as I and, and so what they wind up doing then is in talking about horror, they wind up reducing it. They, they wind up being extremely reductive. Well, yeah. you know, horror is like that Stephen King kind of stuff or whatever. We do other things. Um, so th- there's a part of me that, that thinks, hey, you know, whatever makes you sit down in the chair and write um, – you know, good on you. And so if, if calling yourself a weird fiction writer and believing that what you're doing is in some way different from the tradition that you're part of, um, if, if all of that helps you to write, then, then okay. But I, I think from a, I don't know what you'd call it, like some kind of critical standpoint, I look at what they're doing and I, I say, well, to my way of thinking, horror has always been a huge, not just a big, but a huge tent that's encompassed all kinds of different things. And, um, so I see weird fiction as just fitting into that. I, uh, I, I I have a sense that the, the weird fiction writers, um, are interested in a lot of, of writers, um, outside of, of the tradition of, of let's say, um, you know Stephen King back to through uh, like say Richard Matheson back to Lovecraft I have a feeling that they're more interested in in maybe european writers that haven't been paid attention to as much um uh bruno Schultz or, or someone like that mm-hmm. um and you know w- which is uh, totally uh totally valid but i think um i you know here's the other thing i also think that weird fiction i think they think that weird fiction sounds better than horror fiction you know if somebody asks you what do you write you say horror <laughs> fiction you know they're like Dah. yeah but, you know and so i think they think of the i write weird fiction i i think that there's this uh, it's part of it is rebranding and um and and i am again i'm sympathetic to that to the extent that you want to get your fiction in front of people's eyes and if calling it weird fiction is going to get it in front of people's eyes then uh, sure go ahead i just have yet to see a, a honestly a, a sort of a convincing explanation of of or, or a convincing description of weird fiction that yeah. that, that, that differentiates it from horror fiction um, which as I said I see is this really broad and encompassing term in in any kind of compelling way yeah
1: exactly uh, that's actually that's the reason why I asked is because uh, that that term weird fiction is getting tossed out a lot these days and uh, you know, uh, a lot of weird fiction certainly not all of it but a lot of it is basically just horror
3: yeah and and look i i to, just to prove what a hypocrite i am i was at a um i was at a a reading uh, or or part of like a literary festival a couple of weeks ago up in the in the Catskills it was a wonderful event and during the q and a session for for my own discussion um this uh this woman raised her hand and said I know you, you're part of the new weird, you know, and, <laughs> and, um, I thought to myself, man, that was like what China Mieville and M. John Harrison were calling themselves, you know, it, it, it got, it must be like 10 to 15 years ago now, yeah. but the term still kind of floats around, you know, and I was just like, oh, well, you know, and I kind of hemmed and I hawed and, and, <laughs> um, I didn't give the same, whatever lengthy explanation that I've just given you. I, so I, I'm, you know, people, I, I guess I do feel like, hey, you know, you can call me what you want, uh, as long as you're reading my stuff. Yeah. <laughs> now, one thing uh, I've noticed about your
1: writing, and this actually goes with uh, with a fair amount of uh, uh, what's classified as weird fiction, is that your stories are not only dark and horrific, they're also very literary. Um, now, when you're sitting down to write, do you... Do you take that specific approach, or just just the literary sort of way of writing? Uh, you know, going into people's pasts and 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 whatnot. Uh, does
3: that come somewhat naturally to you? Uh, it's it's kind of both. I mean, on the one hand, I, I the writers that I grew up reading were people like Stephen King and Peter Straub. Mm-hmm. You know, I can vividly remember uh, my local library had copies of Ghost Story and Shadowland. Um, Later on, they would have a copy of Ted Klein's Dark Gods, his his collection of novellas, which was also important to me. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I can remember reading those books, reading a book like Ghost Story, and I loved it. But I also kind of knew when I got to the end of it, man, like I didn't get all of that. There was stuff that I just I knew had kind of gone over my head, but sometimes that makes you feel resentful, right? You know, who does this writer think he is? But I just, I loved it. I loved the thought that that Peter Straub had written this book that was was so complex that I could go back to it. And I tended to do that. I would check them check them out and, and then check them out again, you know, on a kind of a regular basis, just to, to reread them and kind of soak myself in them. And obviously, you know, King and Straub... Um, and Klein too, for that matter, really enjoy that, really enjoy getting into the backstories of their characters, really trying to, you know, they, they were writing these enormous books, right? And part of what they filled those books with was, was the histories of their characters and, and really letting their characters have, have room to, to move around in and, and breathe in. And, and so that when the horror unfurled uh, it was really frightening. It was really, you felt that there was something at stake because these characters you'd come to identify with them or, or at least to, to empathize with them. Mm-hmm. And so what happened to them really mattered. And that was what I wanted to do or what I want to do in, in my own fiction, uh, was to try to come up with, or is to try to come up with characters that you're going to care about so that when I do horrible things to them, um, <laughs> it, it matters to you.
1: Yeah. Um, There's a quote, I think it was by uh, John Irving. I'm not too sure about that, but he's, whoever said it, the, the, the quote is, uh, in any character in fiction, you can't know the character, the main character, unless you go back to their childhood, and uh, you sort of grow with them. And that's the
3: only way you can actually know who a person is. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Irving is—he roots himself very much in, in the kind of tradition of, of, uh, of Dickens, in particular. Yeah, and you know, certainly Dickens has all those novels, uh, uh, David Copperfield or Nicholas Nickleby or Great Expectations, where you follow the growth of the character. You follow the character as as they. Uh, sometimes over a course of decades, but but at least over a course of several years, usually right as they're growing from from childhood to at least young adulthood, and and yeah, you get this sense of how they become who it is they're going to become.
1: Yeah, you know, I'm su- I'm surprised honestly that like uh, the term Dickensian horror hasn't been tossed around at all.
3: Yeah, you know, it's funny, right? Because um, as they've gotten older, you've seen both King and Straub. Uh, talk about dickens more uh they talked about him when when they were younger writers but um they more and more they've they've made reference to him as as a kind of ancestor of of what they're doing now and uh and yeah his his influence does you know i have to be honest i read dickens the first dickens novel i read was great expectations i read it when i was uh, a junior in high school uh, and I had to take a test on it. You know, it was what we were reading for our English class. And so I got it, like, you know, uh, in, in best high school fashion. I got it, like, two nights before <laughs> before the test. I tried to stay up all night reading it. Um, and, of course, Dickens' style is an acquired taste for for a modern reader. Yeah. And uh, so I flunked the test, you know, and that was Dickens' <laughs> fault because he was a terrible writer. And um, it was really in my mid-20s. I, uh, I was like, you know... Should get, go back to this guy, give him another chance. And I sat down and I, I read Great Expectations, and I was just blown away. I just thought it was one of the great novels. Um, and a few years ago I went back and, and, and read it again and, and um, which confirmed my opinion that it was, you know, one of the great novels, but also just this searingly sad book and, and just this guy who just kind of lacerates himself over what jerk he was when he was when he was younger. Yeah. And there's but there is there's this there's this feeling, man, with those books with uh, with great expectations or or Dombey and Son or Bleak House or Little Dora that you're getting a full meal. You know, you you I, I I come away from those novels feeling like man, that was a meal. That was yeah. that was seven courses. That was soup to nuts, as they say. And and that's uh, that's a wonderful to me. That's a wonderful feeling. you know, and obviously it was the same way I felt when I finished a book like The Stand um, or, um, or or Shadowland or or The Throat or you know these big big books that just they were full meals. This was no. Um, nouveau Cuisine, you know, we're going to put a little piece of fish on a plate and drizzle some sauce over it and say, here you go. This was, <laughs> you know, steak and kidney pie or whatever. Oh Yeah, it's a complete journey. It's, uh, you know, somebody's life.
1: And, uh, you know, I've always enjoyed reading those types of novels, the Dickensian type of,
3: uh, you know, fiction, along with Dickens, of course. Yeah, yeah. Well, they're immersive, right? They yeah. They let you and you know when I've when I've tried to teach them to my students, um, I, I teach part time at the State University of New York at New Paltz, and when um, a couple of times I taught courses in in one course in Dickens and another course in Wilkie Collins, and one of the things I say to my students is you know, you have to remember that for the the people for whom these things were written didn't have TV, they didn't have the internet, you know, so so this is what this was all of that wrapped together into a single volume, mm-hmm. and I think if you can take it that way, I, I think it's it's a little easier to understand Oh, all right this is supposed to give me this immersive experience because this is what i'm doing for a couple hours every night to to unwind
1: yeah exactly um congratulations by the way uh on the fisherman it won the stoker
3: thank you that was utterly astonishing um yeah. i uh, i stayed up late um uh, to To watch it, to watch the streaming thing, and it, it cut out like right as George R. R. Martin <laughs> and uh, Linda Addison get up there, and I was like, "Come on!" <laughs> um, <laughs> and then, you know, and and here's the thing, um, honestly, it was an extraordinary that that category was an extraordinary category. I, I mean, any of those books, um, you know, Paul Tremblay's Disappearance at Devil's Rock, um, mm-hmm. which I liked even better than Petful of Ghosts. Um, uh, this, you know, astonishing portrait of a family in, in distress. Um, Mongrels, which, which, you know, Stephen Graham Jones, it's it's one of the great werewolves. It may be the great werewolf novel at this yeah, point. Sure. Um, Liz Hand's... Um, what was it hard light the the latest cast book i mean that's this wonderful series i just absolutely love that character and what what she's doing with that character um and then bracken mcleod stranded you know i I mean this kind of adventure story you know arctic adventure story which which recalls of course the thing but i i think also goes in some ways it invokes the spirit of older writers like you know lovecraft and poe and their kind of polar uh uh, journeys so Any one of those, any one of those books could have won, and I, I would have been totally fine with that. I, I you know, sometimes you're in a, I mean, let's be honest. Sometimes you're nominated, and somebody wins, and you're like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but, but this time around, man, if any of those people won, I would have been happy. I would have been like, congratulations, you deserved it. So, um, so yeah, to to hear my name read out. Was uh, was just. I mean, I nearly fell out of my chair. It it uh, it was it was pretty astonishing. Yeah,
1: well, you're right. It was a, a pretty tough lineup, but I, I would say that the fisherman uh, was well worth uh, the win. Uh, the one reason why I say this I, I read it uh, soon after you won the the award, actually, and I found that the fisherman is like an onion. It's it it's fashioned with layers, stories within stories, and I just loved it. Um, when you, Thank when you, you when Thank you were, yeah, you, you, no problem. When you, when you were writing it, uh, did you have that in mind or did the story just keep growing as you, as you wrote it?
3: Um, I knew that the, uh, I knew that it was going to be, there was going to be a nested narrative. You know, I, I knew that there was going to be, um, something in the middle of, of the story of these two guys going on a fishing trip. I originally thought that it would be like a story itself. In other words, 20 or 30 pages, maybe, mm-hmm. um, but. Uh, there did come a point though when I realized, holy cow, this, this thing in the middle is really growing, and instead of basically a novella containing a short story, I was looking at a short novel containing a short novel, and uh, and I was like, oh man, that's okay, um, but but I just I, I felt okay, just go with it. Um, I I do I love nested narratives. I I love um, I love stories. I love storytellers. You know, my father was a great storyteller. Uh, my mother was a great storyteller too. Um, and, uh, and I kind of just grew up with that when, when my brother and I, my younger brother and I were kids, sometimes my parents would let us watch the beginning of a movie. When we were kids, the big thing was to get to watch the beginning of a James Bond movie, um, Sean Connery preferably, but we would, you know, we would take Roger Moore and, um, (laughs) And we could, we would usually be allowed to watch the beginning, at first like half an hour, and then my parents would be like, "Okay, it's time for bed." Yeah. But then the next day, my dad would like recite almost verbatim the rest of the movie. You know, <laughs> so this is what happened now. You know, and cool. and so um, so yeah, we and you know, and there were obviously they told stories. My dad told stories about being in the British Army when he was younger, and and my parents told stories about their. Their young married life together, and so on. So I, I came out of that. Um, uh, it, it was a very personal thing for me, and uh, and then of, of a lot of the novels that I really liked, um, especially once I I got a, a little bit older. Um, you know, I, when I was that same that same when I was sixteen, that same class where I, I discovered I hated Dickens. Um, <laughs> I uh, I read Jane Eyre. Which is uh, which right from the beginning interestingly, just absolutely floored me and I, I love the way that, that Jane is telling her own story and talking mm-hmm. to the to the to the reader, and then a lot of the the great Gatsby or um, the Sun also Rises or um uh, my antonia willa Cather's mm-hmm. novel um, that there were all these novels that I read and I just loved and and uh, Conrad's stuff Heart of Darkness and Lord Jim and that and, and I love these novels where the narrator was, was kind of part of the story that, that he or she was telling and so I, I'm not like in a way it seems perfectly well it seems almost inevitable to me that this is the kind of stuff I would write uh, growing up the way i had grown up but then also um also reading the stuff that i maybe that was the reason i like to read that stuff i i mean thinking about it now um was because i identified with with that tradition of of storytelling and obviously stephen king and and uh, and peter straub you know included that in in their novels as well mm-hmm. now uh, uh the novel is uh it's not
1: a very long novel though you know despite the uh the layers uh, but did, did it go through many drafts going back to the whole, uh, trying to get it done?
3: You know, um, it, it actually, um, it was more a case of, I would put it aside for a while. And, um, I think the, um, the, what I, I guess what I've been thinking about is sort of the crucial moment in its development came very, very late, um, when I was in the middle of, of that middle section, this, this enormous flashback section or, 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 or uh, past story. And, um, and I keep uh, – at, at the time I thought to myself, um, I knew that I was going to have this, this camp that's at this reservoir that's being built. Um, the guys who were const- you know, helping me build the reservoir and weird things are happening and a group of them get together to go to see what the deal is. And my original thought was that there would, I would let them go off and, and whatever happened would kind of happen out of sight, you know, that, that, that I would have, I would have maybe just people at the camp. There's like weird lights in the sky or whatever, you know, or or, uh, or the whole concept of of the guest. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, well, that's it, right? They're going to deal with that guy. They're going to deal with that guy, yeah. and and we would never actually see that. We would just we would just have this report of of yeah, the people in the camp were like, wow, weird. You know, there was lightning in the sky and it was a weird color, and and then I thought to myself that was maybe kind of a cheat, you know. But but I was a little nervous about about um kind of going all out, uh, and then. My friend, my, my good friend, Laird Barron, was, was working on his first, uh, first long novel, The Croning. Mm-hmm. And he was uh, talking with, uh, with Jeff, uh, Jeff Ford, another fantastic mm-hmm. writer. And Ford said to him, look, you're writing your first novel. Your impulse is going to be to play it safe. Fight that impulse. Go nuts. Just, just whatever you think you can do, whatever you think you can get away with, you do that. So Laird did. And and when I was thinking about my own uh, novel writing, I thought, you know, Ford is right. That's what I have to do. I just have to I have to take a chance on this and, and just don't be afraid to go nuts. And um, and, and I think um, I think the book is is the better for it. So that was, you know, that was maybe the, the major way that that um, the book developed as I was writing it, That that middle story really came into its own more once I allowed it to. The the framing I guess what you would call the framing narrative um was more or less there were a couple of little developments along the way but I always kind of knew where that was going to go. What what ultimately really surprised me um and honestly with the story in the middle I knew where that was going to end. Uh at the, the, I knew that what the very end of it was going to be but a lot of the more dramatic stuff that happens and I guess the sort of climactic section, uh, was, was new to me as I was writing it. Yeah. Uh, you
1: mentioned Laird Barron. Uh, I'm a big fan of his too. Um, oh
3: yeah, absolutely.
1: Uh, I, I know that you and him are, are you're pretty close friends. Uh, I was wondering if you guys ever thought
3: about collaborating at all. Yeah, we kicked, we've kicked a bunch of ideas around. We, uh, it was an early, early thought once we, uh, once we became friends and, uh, um i mean our first idea was to do a godzilla versus cthulhu story (laughs) and uh we just thought that would be crazy and fun and that sort of stuff but um you know we we kind of we kind of moved past that idea um uh and and every now and again we kick stuff around we were we were gonna do um at one point we were gonna do a story you know in in, uh, in mary shelley's frankenstein um after uh after uh Victor destroys the monsters made. He decides he's not going to make the monsters made. They they chase each other around the world, which is ultimately how they come to be where they are at the at the beginning of the novel, and um and nobody really talks about that, you know, like like that that's that's like like you'd, um, at least that I'm aware of. Maybe it's entirely possible that there's a whole bunch of fan fiction out there or whatever <laughs> that, that I'm not aware of. Yeah, so we be. thought it would be uh, we thought it would be fun to do that, but then we were like, eh, you know um and don't get me wrong i reserve the right to write both of those stories myself you know but um so at some point i i think we we will uh we will do something for for honestly part of the problem for both of us right now is is that uh we're both just probably overcommitted in terms of the stuff that we that we have to write that we've told people like ellen datlow oh yeah i'll get a story for you yeah. um and so that um it, it, that makes it difficult to, to just sit down and, and uh, say, "Hey, on a lark, let's just do something together." So I, I, I really hope that at some point in the in the future we'll be able to uh, we'll be able to do that. We'll be able to to come up with something uh, uh, together. That would be awesome. I I, I know I would uh, swipe that up as quickly as I could. <laughs> yeah. No. You know. Look, Laird is the the thing about Laird is. Um, um, Okay, what Laird makes me think of is is, uh, Peter Straub wrote an essay about uh, his first meeting with Stephen King. Mm -hmm. And he said that when he met Stephen King, what radiated from King was this tremendous sense of of integrity, the integrity of what he was doing as a writer. Mm -hmm. And I absolutely feel that way about Laird. Love him or hate him, he is absolutely committed to what he's doing. He is serious about it. He takes it with deadly seriousness he he takes his readers uh seriously as as well and um you know and and look at this point the guy could put down his or or i guess not put down his pen but like step away from his keyboard and he already would have made a tremendous impact there were so many writers so so many of those weird writers (laughs) as it were (laughs) um and and you look at their stuff and you see the you see the imprint of what Laird has been doing you know some of them um, some of them have have alluded to it in the in the titles of their work you know you're like oh wait a minute that sounds like a laird Baron title you know mm-hmm. um and and others just you're reading it and you're like this is somebody who's read a lot of laird baron and 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 then you read the interviews with them and they're like i read a lot of laird Barron. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> My God. and you know which is no look don't get me wrong that's no uh no knock on that no, no. it's just to say that laird's presence has exactly. been yeah. from the get-go just um just overwhelming and astonishing and 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 um yeah i i feel really really privileged to call him my friend he's a, he's a great guy and and uh and yeah I, I just think an amazing writer yeah he he's both i've had a, had
1: the chance to talk to him before too and uh and he was a, a really really fascinating person to talk with now, yeah yeah recently actually uh i don't know when this is coming out but uh
3: i know that house of windows is uh being reissued Yeah, it should be out um, uh, this weekend or the next weekend. I'm not. It might be next. Not. uh, um, I think it will be out in time for Nikon, which is a big horror writers thingy in uh, convention. I guess in uh, in Rhode Island. Yeah, yeah, it. uh, You know, I I mean, long story short, I, I always said with House of Windows, I wrote my second novel first. By which I mean, the character is a little naughty and complicated. The the character relationships are kind of difficult um and uh, and obviously you know it's more of that kind of narratives within narratives and that and and when i published it i had only written a couple of stories only published a couple of stories so i think a lot of people just were like what the heck is this um now i i feel like people have more of an idea of oh this is the kind of writer this guy is so i i think they'll they'll take a look at the book and uh and maybe give it a, a if they haven't read it give it a chance and if they have they're like, oh, I think I read that before. Hopefully, they'll they'll take another look at it. Yeah. Speaking of which, can you tell us a little about what House of Windows is about? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's uh, the the framing narrative is a bunch of people are staying at a house on uh, on Cape Cod. Um, this is actually the same kind of framing device i used in in my first published horror story uh on Skua island um and i'll get back to it at some point for another story or or novel i like the idea you know of people being together in a house and somebody's like hey anybody know any ghost stories you know Mm -hmm. (laughs) so there's this young woman there youngish woman there whose much older husband disappeared um and is presumed presumed dead but there seems to be more to the story and she agrees to tell the the narrator, the framing narrator, if he'll uh, if he'll hang out with her. She agrees to tell him the story. And what you uh, what you learn is is that she was her husband's student. Um, he was a college professor. She was his graduate student. They had an affair, and the affair ultimately led to him leaving his wife or his wife leaving him. Uh, but but the two of them got together and, and got married. However, his adult son who was in the, the military, um, was a Green Beret, uh, was, uh, was less than thrilled with this. And mm-hmm. father and son had a big altercation, a big fist fight basically, at the end of which they were thrown in jail. The cops were called, they were thrown in jail. And the morning after, as the, as the, the son tried to sort of put his hand out to the father and say, hey, come on, uh, the father disowns him, the father in fact curses him, which is ridiculous. But subsequently, uh, the son is deployed to Afghanistan, where he's killed. And long story short, the father finds out that he can't be haunted by the ghost of his son, but his wife is being haunted by the ghost of the son. And the house in which they stay, there's a whole crazy history that opens up there. There's there's references to, to Dickens, among other things. Um, so, yeah, it, it goes in just this, this crazier and crazier direction as, as this... Um, this woman, who's who's increasingly aware of all these supernatural things happening around her, is trying to get her husband to lift this curse. She's trying to say, "Stop it! Just take it back!" And he refuses to do it. He he won't do it. I did nothing wrong, he says. Mm-hmm. That sounds uh, fascinating. I haven't
1: honestly, I haven't read that one yet. So I'm going to pick it up when it comes out. Uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to it because I really enjoy your writing. Thank you. Uh, and speaking of your writing,
3: do you have anything that's coming out in the near future that you're free to talk about? Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, I'm. I'm. Uh, I have. <laughs> speaking of things that are overdue, uh, my third. Uh, my third collection, uh, which is called *Safira and Other Betrayals*, mm-hmm. uh, which is available for pre-order from Hippocampus Press. It's. Uh, uh, it's coming out. I hope in the fall. I'd really hope to have it out in the summer. I'd hope to have it out in the spring. Uh, long story short with with each collection i like to have um at least one new piece of fiction in it, and i like it to be a novella if i if i can Mm uh so the novella for this has just grown into a a short novel and i'm trying to (laughs) to to get to the end of it now and i'm also writing uh another story another original story uh, in part just because it's 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 a story that I had written the beginning of, and uh, when I was putting the collection together initially, I thought, man, that story would be really cool to include with this collection. But I already had one original story, and I thought, you know, come on, that's enough. But over time, I just thought, you know, I've really got to include that story. That's just the book would not be the same without that story. So um, so I'm really hoping to have them both done and in. And, and, you know, uh, we've already have a lovely cover from uh, Santiago Caruso, who did the cover for... The, uh, the first edition of House of Windows and also the cover for The Wide carnivorous Sky. He's this oh, brilliant, sweet. brilliant, brilliant Argentinian artist. And um, so that, I hope, will be out sometime. It has an introduction by Paul Tremblay and story notes and all this. Mm. I just have to finish up these things. So that'll be <laughs> out, I hope, in the fall. And then I also, I'll have um, a novella coming out uh, called Lost in the Dark, which is in, I think the title of the anthology now is Haunted Nights. It was. It's an anthology that Ellen Datlow and Lisa Morton edited um, for the Horror Writers Association. Oh, yes. And uh, it's through Blumhouse Books. Originally, it was it was going to be called something like All Hallows' Eve. It was basically a Halloween-themed anthology. And then the publisher, I guess, got a little bit of, of cold feet about, the. well, you know, if we have a Halloween title, surely people, you know, they'll only buy it on Halloween. And so they mm-hmm. changed the title a little bit. Um, but that, uh, that'll be out. And... Um, I have uh, uh, Doug Marano uh, put together a um, an anthology. I want to say it's called uh, Behold. I think it's like you know oddities and curiosities. Yes. and I have a short story, short short story, in uh, in that. Um, so yeah, you know, uh, and also uh, Darren Spiegel has edited an anthology called Adam's Ladder, which is kind of about, you know, post-humanist tales, I guess. And so yeah. um, I wrote a little horror story for that called My Father, Dr. Frankenstein, and I think that'll be out in the fall as well.
1: Awesome. So uh, where can listeners find you online? Uh,
3: you know, I spend way too much time on Facebook. <laughs> uh, it's uh, It sounds like a joke, but it's really not. It's really no, true. <laughs> I understand uh, that. <laughs> and... Uh, um, and you know they can just check my website They, they uh, basically I have a, a wordpress blog if they just google uh, just look up uh, you know John Langan horror writer or uh, the, the name of the blog is Mr. Gaunt um, which was the name of an early successful story so I just kind of stole that name for myself um so yeah, they can they can find me there. Uh, there are a couple of other John Langans out there. There's a guy who writes college textbooks. Yeah, uh, a <laughs> actually, I ran textbook. into that while uh, yeah. doing some backstory on you. <laughs> yeah, like... yeah, I am I am not that guy. I wish I were because he like owns a house on the the Jersey Shore. So he must be doing okay for himself. Yeah. Um, and there's another guy that writes another John Langan that writes uh, high school uh, novels. I'm not that guy either. Um, there's a guy who's a Jesuit. Uh, I am none of these John Langans, but if you look for the horror writer John Langan, the chances are you'll find me. Yes, excellent. Well, thank you so very much, John, for uh, for having this
1: discussion with me, and uh, and I hope to talk to you again shortly. Hey,
3: thanks very much. I really, really appreciate the time. Thanks very much. Thank you.
0: Thank you for tuning in to our Weird Fiction Special. A huge thank you to Jason White and guests John Langan and Laird Barron, who made this episode possible. If you've liked what you've heard today, you can subscribe to The Great Lakes Horror Company on iTunes, Google Music, or Stitcher. And you can support the making of this podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash libraryofthedamned. Also, if you like what we do, please take a moment out of your very busy day to leave us a review. It helps more people discover the podcast. You can also find us on Facebook, just search for us by name, and on Twitter at GLHorrorPodcast. If you have a question, comment, or idea for a future show, please email it to glhc at horror-writers.ca. The Great Lakes Horror Company is sponsored by Library of the, the show is produced by Sefer Jerome, Monica S. Kubler, and Andrew Robertson. Our theme music has been provided by Leslea Kierwurst. Thanks for listening, and until next month, keep it weird. And if it's already weird... Make it weirder.